Warning, the following podcast is a shit show, and the individuals you are about to meet are idiots. Their opinions, anecdotes, and advice contain zero nutritional value. This is the critical human condition and all of its strangeness. This is life, according to an idiot. Hello, and welcome to this mini-sode. Wow, you're pretty lucky for being here. Hey, we're going to be talking about that in a couple seconds. Wow. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) Hi, my name's Jeremy. Uh, Hi, my name is Mo. And you're listening to According to an Idiot, as we said before, a mini-sode, which is just a regular episode, but mini-sides. Wow. Where we don't have segments. We just talk about a topic. Uh-huh. Whoa. The help. <laughs> <laughs> I Let's see, get you, to you it. You pressed one of your presets and it didn't, it didn't read well, so you pressed the second one. <laughs> whoa. I have a soundboard. Yeah, you have a soundboard. Like, oh, that didn't work. Do a whoa. Didn't you literally make us a soundboard? Yeah, I made a soundboard. Like I'm, fucking two years ago? I made like a really trashy soundboard where I just got like a speaker and I created audio files and like played them in order through a speaker. <laughs> so it was not a soundboard. It was a sound. It was a sound. Uh, it was sound. Yeah. But yeah, I was gonna. I was trying to push that for a long time. I was like, we're going to be a soundboard podcast, you know, because people love that- shitty <laughs> talk radio where they have soundboards. You did that for literally one single episode. And yeah. I was like, I hate it. It was terrible, but I loved it. Mm-hmm. It's, it is terrible. Yeah. Um, And I hate it. Yep. And I remember finding the most far-fetched sounds and then trying to find a way to loop it into the episode (laughs) well it was also you recording yourself going mo well no it wasn't it was it was the artist formerly known as oh yeah yeah, yeah. it was pre-mo it was back when it was i have kaylee yeah ew Ew. (laughs) not you it's a fine name but you prefer mo and mo is honestly cooler looking at me as kaylee is wrong yeah it does not feel right in my brain i call you mo now Kaylee, it sounds like I'm stabbing you in the back when I say it. I'm looking you in the eyes and saying, Kaylee, Kaylee. Ooh, that, yeah. Every time I hear I want to cringe yeah. a little bit. Yeah, well, my voice, Kaylee, my voice doesn't help. <laughs> Kaylee, Kaylee. It's wrong. It's wrong. Kaylee. In my brain, I still call myself Kaylee every now and again. I have to go, no, it's Mo. Well, just, it, it's you. It is, you don't even need to have a name in your head. Do you know that? Yeah. It's weird. Isn't that crazy? You don't need to even call yourself. Inside your head, you're safe. You're not going to mistake who you're talking to because you're talking yeah, to you. I'm talking to myself. So the name is for everybody else. Right. Your name could be anything, like Wrathbane. How lucky would that be? Let's get back on topic. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's right. Holy shit. Anyways. Um, <laughs> oh, luck be a lady tonight. Oh. Oh, luck something something tonight. Oh. Oh, luck if you've ever been a lady to begin with. Oh, luck be a lady tonight. That's right, folks. This is oh, another wow. mini-sode, and we're talking about luck. We're talking about fate, <laughs> chance, circumstance, and the chaos of our own lives. Wow. Did you have that planned, or did that just come right off the lip? That just came right out of me like magic. <gasps> that was pretty lucky of you. <laughs> you know what? Stay out of it. <laughs> don't, yeah, don't, don't tarnish my goal. I don't know why, but like you doing that made me want to do the dad thing where you like snap your fingers and do... Yeah. It's like the snap and palm or whatever. Exactly. Like, I thought I was already a dad before. I know we're not going to do too much babble, but I need to express my dad levels. I upped my dad level because I started doing that fuckery that they do with with their hands. hands. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Where they, like, snap both their fingers and then they, like, hit hit the top of their hands so it makes, like, a nice little sound. 
It's because we're supposed to be hunters, but we're stuck being domesticated and playing golf. So mm. I'm speaking strictly of old white men. Because <laughs> um, really, that's the only people I've seen do that stuff. But dads are supposed to be killing boars with spears, but instead they're wearing khakis and not treating your mother that great. And not flossing. I can't even picture my dad flossing. That's the least you could do is floss your teeth. But we're straying. We're straying from the path that the good Lord set out for us today, which is to talk about luck and chance. What are your thoughts, Mo, on luck and chance. I actually really believe in luck. I believe in luck and I believe in karma. I believe in luck because I have been fortunate enough in my lifetime to be very lucky. What if I told you that luck was just a construct in our brains? I would say foolery. Tom foolery. What is no, this? I don't believe I don't, it. I don't know because I mean I guess the jury is out on whether universal magic exists but in a sense luck is sort of looked at in a superstitious way obviously. Mm-hmm. The origin of the word luck has its roots, they believe, in reference to, you know, parlor games. And the word itself is relatively modern, the word luck, appearing sometime between 1480 and 1500. That doesn't sound modern, but remember, there were dinosaurs. (laughs) So in context to that, it's very modern. Derived from the Germanic geluck or geluk. And that means a positive coincidence. Mm. And again, it was typically used, referenced when gambling or, or, you know... Uh, playing a game of chance. Excuse me, have you heard of leprechauns? I'm pretty sure they invented it, so. I, I actually didn't reach out to any leprechauns to get their take on this. <laughs> so, <laughs> before luck entered the English lexicon, the concept of good fortune was expressed in Old and Middle English with the word speed, which refers to fate and divine help, which is where we get the term Godspeed. May mm. God help you. Mm. May God grant you luck. Luck was personified with figures like Fortuna, the Roman goddess of fate and luck, and later, Lady Luck, as I serenaded you with earlier, mm. that old uh, Sinatra song. Another female figure portrayed as fickle and a servant to a god. Because, you know, all women are fickle. We were made this way in God's image, so maybe you should appreciate... God had a dick. I'm sorry. My <laughs> we, god had testicles. Okay, but we're your man's rib, so... That's right. Isn't that so degrading? Like, you're a rib. Right. You're not even like a, a cooler part of the body. Unless like you listen to our Lilith episode... That's In which right. case, are yeah. we rib or are we dirt? <laughs> <laughs> the age-old question. Are we rib or are we dirt? <laughs> okay, so just a little dash of science to ruin it for a second. A more rational scientific view of luck is that it's just a result of bad logic and wishful thinking. So the logical fallacy, there's this logical fallacy called post hoc ergo propter hoc. It's Latin <laughs> for something. Since event Y <laughs> followed event X, event Y must have been caused by event X. Post hoc ergo propter hoc. That's what that means. Logic people, you get it. Can I have one of those like, it's like live, laugh, love, but it's whatever the fuck you just Post-hoc said. Post hoc ergo propter hoc. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just run over your kitchen table yeah. in like cursive. <laughs> um, so also there's the gambler's <laughs> fallacy, which I remember learning about in logic class. And that's if a certain event occurs more frequently than normal in the past, it is less likely to occur in the future. So it's like, I can't pick those numbers because they mm. just played those numbers. I, I'm sorry. I'm like going off in my head. I'm very committed now to the idea of merch with that fucking saying on it. <laughs> Post hoc ergo propter hoc. <laughs> it's, I cannot. I, yeah. I, it's just a little bit too long yeah. and a little bit too Latin sounding. I 100% would buy a sticker that said that. If you would buy merch with that saying on it, um, <laughs> please let, let me know, know because I need one single person to tell me just a single fucking person to reach out and I'll do it. Anyways, continue. 
So very quickly going into numbers, numbers are very tied to luck throughout history and, and cultures yes. and whatnot. Uh, we, we mentioned a little bit of this in our Curses mini-sode, if you haven't seen that. Why am I always advertising past episodes? I don't know, because we're developing a body of work. And sometimes <laughs> I want to reference this so that you get the full experience. Well, also, just a lot of things overlap, like a lot of ideas and cultures do. and things. And sometimes it's just helpful to know where those little tidbits of information play a part in other stories and other timelines. Yeah, sometimes it's important. Other alternate realities. Sometimes it's important to know that we have a Patreon that you can get. It's according to an idiot Patreon on Patreon. So you check out our Patreon too. I don't know. Huh? Uh, right. So numbers. <laughs> Lucky, unlucky numbers are especially popular in Asian folk beliefs. Four is considered unlucky in Chinese because it is a homophone with the word death. And a homophone, mm-hmm. Mo, what's a homophone? <laughs> um, it's uh, where it sounds the same, but it has different meanings. Exactly, yes. Wow, look at me. Yes. Like Harry and Harry, my dog. It's right. You have a dog named Harry. Who is Harry. Who is Harry. But it's not, <laughs> but it's not why he's called Harry, because his name is different. <laughs> in Japan, number nine is similarly avoided because it's homophone. It's... Homophonous. I don't know how the fucking word is. It's a homo- homophobic. Yeah, it's homophobic. Homophone. Pick up the homophone. It's time to party. Uh, it's a homo. It's a homophone. Uh, already spinning off the wheels. Um, to the Japanese word for torture and suffering, which is unfortunate. Maybe you should have thought of that when you're making the word for torture and suffering. Yeah. Okay. Thirteen is considered unlucky in the U.S. Don't you know? We all knew that. Cause, yeah. You know, because. We're all American citizens here. 13 is considered unlucky in the U.S. and other Western nations for a lot of possible reasons, none of which make sense. One explanation I heard was that Judas, in the Bible, he was the 13th guest at the Last Supper. Hmm. I don't, there literally was no convincing, there was no like straight, I couldn't find a single reason why 13 specifically gets so much hate. Randomness is something I want to talk about. Hmm. This episode is less about the mystical nature of luck but the chaotic randomness of good and bad luck. Mm, I like that. That's interesting. The unpredictability of life or the fickleness of Lady Luck. This episode is just going to be a lot of, huh, what are the odds of that? Hmm. So I want to talk. I want to talk. Okay. (laughs) Is that all right? (laughs) Talk about what? Uh, I want to talk about Tutomu Yamaguchi. That's what I was going to (laughs) say. Really? (laughs) We're always finishing each other's sentences. That was an easy one. And he is what one would call a lucky lad. Hibakusha. Ah, well. I heard I, I heard you start to making that sound. Mm. The Japanese have a word, which is that. It's uh, which is hibakusha, mm. um, which means person affected by a bomb. Wow. I know. This term had existed to label victims and survivors of any kind of explosive or bomb after mm. August, obviously. After uh, mainly the nuke because we dropped a nuke on Japan. Remember that? I was gonna. I was really happy. I didn't make the joke. I was gonna make. What was right the joke? Because they have a bomb ass pussy. Yep. And, okay. nope. well, no. We just end up frying them like chicken. It was horrible. Mm, yep. After August sixth and 9th, nineteen forty-five, when the U.S. military dropped atomic bombs over Japan. Hibakusha became synonymous with survivors of the atomic bombs and the subsequent radiation effects. Really Mm. horrific stuff, but also just... The Japanese government began allocating financial support and free health care in 1957. By the 1970s, non-Japanese Hibakusha began fighting for recognition and compensation for their long-term health problems. These Hibakusha 
were made up of conscripts, those people in the military, who were assigned to work in Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the time of the bombing as well, and Japanese who immigrated to the U.S. after World War II, many of which were war brides. They were also affected by the atomic bomb. So a lot mm. of people, it's kind of recognized now, and they have you know uh, like financial support from the government, but it affects so many people. Uh, Japanese law defines hibakusha as people who fall into one or more of the following categories. Either an individual who, A, was within kilometers of ground zero of the bombs, B, was within two kilometers of ground zero within two weeks of the bombings, C, was exposed to radiation from fallout, or D, was not yet born but carried by a pregnant woman in any of the aforementioned categories. Mm. So that's a really large scope of people. Yeah. As of today, roughly 650,000 people have been officially recognized as hibakusha by the Japanese government. How many? 650,000. Wow. As of March 2020, 136,682 were still living, a majority in Japan. Mm. 324,000 hibakusha in Hiroshima bombing, and there were 185,000 in the hibakusha, the Nagasaki bombings. As I mentioned, there were two separate bombings three days apart. On August 6, 1945, at 8.15 a.m., Japan, standard time, an atomic bomb codenamed Little Boy was dropped by a Boeing B-29 Superfortress onto Hiroshima. At this time, Marine engineer Tutomu Yamaguchi was on a three-month-long business trip in Hiroshima. That morning, Yamaguchi was about to leave the city with two of his colleagues when, on his way to the train station, Yamaguchi discovered that he had forgotten a form of ID needed for travel and headed back to his work office to fetch it. At 8.15 a.m., he was on foot when the first nuclear weapon ever used in warfare dropped a mere three kilometers, that's just under two miles, yeah. from him. And Yamaguchi recalled spotting the bomber and two descending parachutes before a blinding light consumed the sky and he was blown back by a shockwave. Those two parachutes, that was like the parachutes on a bomb. Right. The explosion left him with temporary blindness, ruptured eardrums, and severe radiation burns across the left side of his upper body. After resting and regaining his sight, Yamaguchi took refuge in a dugout bomb shelter 200 yards away. He later ventured through the city where he roamed the devastated hellscape and eventually reunited with his two colleagues that were with him earlier. Mm -hmm. With Hiroshima destroyed, Yamaguchi and his colleagues cut their business trip short and headed home to the bustling city of Nagasaki. So he goes from one place that just got nuked to the next place that's going to be nuked. Oh, no. Yeah. So Yamaguchi, uh. Yamaguchi first went to a hospital in Nagasaki where he was treated for his burns and wrapped in bandages. So he goes to, he goes to Nagasaki and goes right to a hospital. Yeah. So he's all bandaged up. In ultra-Japanese fashion, Yamaguchi reported to his place of work the next day, which wow. was a, a shipyard, and that was August 9th. That's the day the second bomb dropped. He reported to his director, who had sent him to work in Hiroshima, and the director was reportedly furious with Yamaguchi, namely for abandoning his post and losing track of his colleagues in... Um, While he was in, bombed? In, in Hiroshima, yeah. Jeez. The director also doubted his account of Hiroshima's destruction, saying, quote, a single bomb can't destroy a whole city. You've obviously been badly injured, and I think you've gone a little mad. Because at the time, the news hadn't totally gotten there. They just knew there was a bombing. Wow. Nobody knew the scope, the massive scope of it. It was during Yamaguchi's confrontation with his director around 11.02 a.m. on August 9th that another atomic bomb, more powerful than the first, codenamed Fat Man, was dropped by another Boeing B-29 Superfortress onto Nagasaki. As his boss is talking to him, Yamaguchi recalled seeing a bright flash from a nearby window, followed by an explosion that tore through the office. 
Now a seasoned Hibakusha, Yamaguchi immediately fled the ruins of his office, escaping through a broken window. Second bomb drops. Can you imagine like the, ah, you're just making it up. You're just being a fucking pansy. And then you get bombed. Yeah. Like like, that's the ultimate karma. Yeah. And right here in uh, an excerpt uh, in a 2009 Times article by Richard Lloyd Perry on Yamaguchi. Yamaguchi says, quote, we were both on the ground. The director was shouting, help me. I realized at once what had happened, that it was the same thing at Hiroshima. But I was so angry with the director, I climbed out of the window and got away because I had to help myself. Fuck yeah. So it's like, just like a movie where the director's like, you, you know, you lazy, blah, blah, blah. And then immediately is like, help me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yamaguchi rushed to his home in Nagasaki and reunited with his wife and infant son, both of whom had not sustained serious injury from the previous bombing. Mm. For about a week, Yamaguchi and his family hid in their backyard bomb shelter. He spent these days in and out of consciousness due to a fever from his wounds and radiation sickness. On August 15th, Mm. days later, he was woken by celebrations, a radio broadcast of Emperor Hirohito announcing Japan's surrender from World War II. Tutomu Yamaguchi went on to live another 65 years, passing away in 2010 at the age of 93. Wow, look at that. I'm glad he didn't get any like very serious like injuries from it, apparently. So he, so he did later in life, uh, I think he had cancer, like on and off, or mm-hmm. he had some sort of cancer. And also his children both, I think, died of cancer. Ah, uh, wow. So Yamaguchi is what's known as a Niju Hibakusha, a double survivor. The legendary circumstances which led to his consecutive run-ins with the world's most deadly weapons seem too absurd and astonishing to simply chalk up to fate. Mm-hmm. And yet that's exactly what it was. Fate, chance, and dumb luck. So was he lucky or unlucky? That's my biggest takeaway. It's like, would you consider this luck or, or the opposite? Because it's kind of both. He's both the luckiest man alive and the most unlucky man alive in that moment. Right. Like, how would you even think a- around that? Because he forgot his ID, so he had to go back to get bombed, went to the hospital, went to work to get bombed a second time. Yeah. Like, he still survived and everything, but like... Are you lucky or are you unlucky? I can't like yeah. you're you're lucky considering the very unlucky circumstances you were in. Yeah, absolutely. Would you consider yourself to be a lucky or unlucky person? I would say I'm lucky because You met me. That's right. <laughs> I would say I'm lucky because um I'm here, you know what I mean? And also yeah. I was born I'm I also have like privilege. Yeah. I was lucky enough to be born with privilege. Yeah. Which is just crazy. So I would say I'm definitely lucky. That's true. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Oh, I like that. What a great answer. Thank I you. was I was lucky to be born gay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it gives you some flavor. It gives you some perspective. All right. Mainly in inconvenience, in but it's <laughs> it's something to be proud of. So here's another excerpt from the interview. This is the journalist writing. Quote, I asked Mr. Yamaguchi if he felt optimistic about the future. He hesitated, then said, I have hope for the future. Where did that hope come from? I believe in love, in human beings, he said. Mm -hmm. And he was weeping again. The reason that I hate the atomic bomb is because of what it does to the dignity of human beings. Look at the photographs of the aftermath of the atomic bombing, those dead bodies in the photographs. When you forget the dignity of individual human beings, that is when you are heading towards the destruction of the earth. Yeah. It, that was... Isn't it crazy how we bombed Japan and they, our relationship with them is pretty much fine. You know yeah, what I mean? I mean? Yeah. And that's like we're it's fortunate that that is the way it turned out. I think Japan needed to be stopped. Mm. But I don't think we should have I don't think the atomic bomb should have ever been made. No. I think that, that not. I honestly believe that it just pushed us towards closer to the end of the world. Just like all of the uh, carelessness around such like powerfully destructive things. 
especially with a bomb because it was known at the time that it was overkill, no pun intended, but right. like yeah. it was overkill, but it was all about sending a message. Yeah, it was all about ego. Yeah. It was really all it was. It was all about ego and like having the power and needing to demonstrate that power. Yeah, it was. I feel like I don't know enough about World War II to really say whether or not it was necessary, really. Some people say it was a necessary evil. I don't know. Think about what the Nazis were doing. Think about what the Japanese were doing. The Japanese were doing some really repugnant stuff, too. And I mean, so were we. Like, literally everybody was committing war crimes. Yeah. It was one big war crime. Yeah, the world was a dark place in general. I feel like that had to definitely, being alive at that time, you had to really get a sense that the world was over. Yeah. Because we feel like abysmal now, but like literally the, the world was at war. Bombs that erased shit off the map were being yeah. made. London was just a bunch of rubble. Like these it's old historical nuts. places were erased off the map. Just a lot of human rights violations and genocides and right. like holy shit. I feel like we barely even learn about it anymore. Like at least in America, like I know my school, I feel like we didn't even really cover what happened really. We're it was, like, oh, it varies we were right. so much between schools. Yeah. Like, oh, we stopped the Germans because they were doing really bad things. Let's learn. Let's have an entire year on the Holocaust, but not actually address like anybody else's participation in it. Let's yeah. just let's just tell everyone how bad Germany was. <laughs> but anyways, neither here nor there. Yeah. Point is very unlucky, lucky dude. Yes. Very lucky and very unlucky in luck. For countless men, grooming can be a confusing and even painful chore. And if you're anything like me, you've had so many close calls shaving with bad razors that it's a miracle you aren't currently hitting the high notes in a ballless barbershop quartet. Don't let a misguided razor threaten your family bloodline. It's time to start grooming with confidence. And luckily, we have a great sponsor to help you with that. This episode of According to an Idiot is sponsored by Manscaped. The champions of below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. They sent me my own mower to try, and I give you my undying guarantee that this is the <laughs> cleanest and easiest shave my body has ever experienced. Join over 2 million people worldwide who trust Manscaped. With this exclusive offer for you, you get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code IDIOT at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use promo code IDIOT. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Thanks, Manscaped. Now back to the show. Woo! So some other briefcases before I get into my last favorite one. Yeah. There's a guy named Frain Selick. He's a Croatian man whose claims have dubbed him the world's most unlucky, lucky man. Uh, so starting in January 1962, Selick boards a train that derailed in a rainy canyon, crashing into a river. He was pulled from the water by an unknown person, and 17 fellow passengers died. Selick escaped with, broke, with a broken arm and hypothermia. In 1963, the next year, on his first ever plane flight to visit his ill mother, the aircraft crashed, killing two pilots, a flight attendant, and 17 other passengers. Selleck suffered minor injuries after landing in a haystack. Wow. He fell out of a plane into a haystack. Wow. In 1966, Selleck boarded a bus that skidded into a river. He escaped while several died. In 1970 and 73, Selleck reports two similar incidents, <laughs> incidents of driving cars that caught fire only to explode moments after his escape. Wow. In 1995, he was hit by a bus. In 2003, <laughs> Selleck wins the lottery, equivalent of 1.1 million U.S. dollars. 
So like it, at the very end, as an old man, like he just wins the lottery. It's like he wow. it gets paid back. And also just an additional thing too, a surprisingly lucky person in history was Hitler. Hmm. Um, Hitler survived a gas attack in World War One, as well as a shell that exploded and killed everyone in his trench. Wow. He went on to narrowly avoid countless assassination attempts in World War II. Wow. There was a point too where it's like somebody had put a bomb in a suitcase and brought it to a table where Hitler was at. And I think literally Hitler just happened to move it to the other side of the table and like the person next to him took all the shrapnel. Wow. Like just little stuff like that. I feel like there really is, in a way, a type of plan or like a way that things are kind of supposed to go or leaning towards. And like the universe kind of bends out of its way to make things happen. And that's kind of what luck and un- unlucky, I feel like, kind of is on your receiving end of the plan yeah. of the universe. You right. know what I mean? Did the writing staff give you a good part? Exactly. It, yeah, that's, that's one way to look at it for sure. Because it does seem to be that some things just have to happen. Exactly. You know, some things are inevitable. I don't know if I necessarily believe that, believe that, but I think it's like kind of like a fun thought experiment in yeah. a way. And the thing with Hitler, let's say the universe's plan, fate was that he needed to live out his life the way that he did. And all these assassination attempts would have wiped that. So he got these like random little impulses to move this suitcase or go to this area, whatever, because that was the universe trying to curb that plan yeah. to happen. So he was very lucky because he was being pushed to do these things. This is the sole reason why we have ideas like these is because we can't sit with the idea that it was just random. Uh, yeah, right? Yeah. Because it literally just doesn't feel good. doesn't make sense. So you're like, the universe wants certain things to happen. No, right. it's just, no. It, it's it, just chance. It very likely just doesn't. As people, we like things to happen. So we, we yeah. personify everything. So the universe is a person too. Yeah. There's a God, which is just like a bigger human controlling everything. I think and we're okay because we're being controlled. For sure. Because it's like, damn, if that is just chaotic, it's a miracle that we're like all okay. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, the main segment of this episode, I want to talk about a, a man named Lord Timothy Dexter. Ooh, that's a great name. So famed 18th century American businessman, author, and self-claimed philosopher slash genius, Lord Timothy Dexter wasn't an actual lord. He just called himself one. Born in 1748 in Malden, Massachusetts, then known as the province of Massachusetts Bay, one of the 13 colonies in pre-revolutionary America. With a famously dull intelligence, Dexter left school at the age of eight to work as a farm laborer. At eight? At eight. And at 16, he worked as an apprentice to a leather tanner. At 22, he moved to Newburyport, Massachusetts, where one year later he married the wealthy 32-year-old widow, Elizabeth Frothingham. Hmm. Gold digging was just one of the ways Dexter took significant risks to fulfill his lofty goal of becoming an aristocrat. Throughout his life, he just wants to be like the people on the hill. He just wants to be a big dog. So he starts to take interest in politics because he sees this is the, you know, this is, uh, at this time, the East Coast was the center of of America, of the American spirit and all that stuff. So that's where we dump tea. And so he sees that politicians, that's a quick way to become nobility, to be respected right. and appreciated is to be... Uh, it's the easiest know. way to get power. Exactly. So now married to a rich elite, Dexter decided to begin a political career, having noted that many wealthy men amass power and acclaim by pursuing politics and government. Yep. Dexter's poor beginnings, poor etiquette, and the fact that he married into his wealth turned off his upper class neighbors and peers. Making a name for himself in politics would finally earn him respect. Hmm. Did he do it? 
Uh, we'll find out. <laughs> As an uncharismatic, uneducated outsider, Dexter's attempts at snatching up a government job were unsuccessful. But after spamming the government body of nearby Malden, Massachusetts with endless petitions, officials were so overwhelmed and annoyed <laughs> that a post was created just for him, and that post was called Informer of Deer. Of Deer? Yes. So as the informer of deer, Dexter was in charge of monitoring the town's deer population. Dexter enjoyed the prestige of public office, but found himself with little actual work to do. You see, after a comprehensive survey of the town's deer population, Dexter reached the conclusion that the government and the citizens of Malden, Massachusetts had already known for almost two decades. There were no deer in Malden, Massachusetts. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so fulfilled over time, fulfilled by his success in public office, Dexter set his sights on the next pipe dream, investing in market speculation. Wow. So, so far, he's come from the absolute bottom. And through just being a dumbass, he just, he, he's like, well, in my, I, I kind of made this point in my head when I was researching this. He's like chaotic Forrest Gump. Mm. He sort of just staggers into all these opportunities and all these massive moments. Yeah. And is able to seize it somehow, almost always on accident. It's always <laughs> wow. because he's so uncouth. He's so, uh, such a shitty guy. Right. Such a dummy. And, but like somehow it always, it looks like, as we go through this, it looks like the universe is bending to his, in his favor. It wow. really looks like it's, it looks like it's something's being manipulated. It's very strange. Continental dollar. That was America's first form of paper, you know. First form of paper currency, not first form of paper. <laughs> uh, so it was issued by the Continental Congress in 1775 as a way to further establish America's rising independence from Britain. Mm. During the Revolutionary War, as the soon-to-be country was struggling to defeat the British military, the value of the Continental dollar plummeted because we were sucking so bad. Right. There's no faith in that dollar. Despite this, Congress continued printing more money and flooded the market with untrusted and useless currency. Disgusting. Right. Wipe my butt Worthless. with it. Worthless. Wipe my butt with it. Worthless U.S. government. Example. Not much has changed. In November 1776, uh, around $19 million in continental currency had been issued, and one could rightfully buy $1 worth of goods for $1 in paper. By 1779, three years later... Uh, roughly 226 million more dollars was in circulation, and one could require one could require acquire. No, one would require forty dollars in paper to buy one dollars worth of goods. Oh, so yeah. it was just like it was so uh, much. Yeah, so much depreciation. Yes. Uh, the phrase "not worth a continental" became popular in America at the time to indicate the worthlessness of something, hmm. to show patriotism and boost public confidence in the currency the uber-wealthy began buying back some of the bills. Hmm. Some of these uber-wealthy people were Dexter's neighbors and peers, people that he wanted to impress. Right. Still starved for the respect and approval of these aristocrats, Dexter blindly emulated their actions. So he goes, <laughs> you're going to buy? I'm going to buy two. Right. I'm going to buy two. Also worthy of noting, so originally they were doing this as well, is that soldiers were paid with continental currency, and after the war they were very poor because of it. So the, hmm. the only way they're being paid is in this funny money, that is worth nothing. So, like, not only were they soldiers, right? Gross. Hmm. Uh, they also were getting paid in like Chuck E. Cheese tokens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is a bummer. <laughs> so, average citizens were struggling and happily sold their continental dollars. Uh, never one for subtlety, Dexter gathered he and his wife's savings and brought back an ungodly amount of the continental currency for fractions of pennies on the dollar. So he bought it all up extra cheap. 
I should make clear too that there was absolutely no guarantee that you would make he would make his money back on this. There was yeah. literally zero guarantee. It's a gamble. It was, yeah, because the his rich peers were likely doing it for like a PR stunt, you know, just so the public would think they were good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dexter's decision to buy literal boatloads. He actually got boats full of this money. What um, was both unfounded and idiotic. <laughs> However, when the Constitution was finally ratified in the 1790s, Alexander Hamilton's financial plan as Secretary of the Treasury was to establish a central bank and a more stable currency. The Constitution, therefore, stipulated that continentals, the dollar, could be exchanged for treasury bonds at 1% face value. Mm. Having held on to his unfathomably large volume of discontinued dollars, Dexter exchanged his stockpile and became disgustingly rich. Wow. Boats full of this money. Just complete chance. Uh, But that's not all. Being known as a classless idiot eager to fit in (laughs) with his peers, some of Dexter's wealthy neighbors who hated him had given him intentionally terrible advice by suggesting he invest in foreign currencies too, British, French, etc. Having blindly bought massive volumes of European money, Dexter was then able to take advantage of the then favorable exchange rates and reap another astronomical profit. Wow. (laughs) After proving himself to be a successful money man, albeit entirely on accident, Dexter was still rejected by the noble class he so badly idolized. He also, though, is not worth the pity because by all accounts, the upper class socialites that frequented parties and events with Dexter were unanimously disgusted by his terrible manners, (laughs) quote, crude rhetoric and inappropriate behavior. He was just a dumb psycho. He was just like a dumb. He left school when he was eight years old. Right. And he puts all of his value in social status. Yeah, social status. So Dexter figured that since he was such a brilliant and wealthy guy, he surely wasn't the cause of his social exile. No, it was everybody else that was the problem. Naturally. Dexter left Malden and bought a giant mansion in coastal Newburyport, Massachusetts, a prosperous mercantile town with a large population. That's where he built his palace. His palace? His palace Of is... course. Like, what else are you going to use all that money for? Mm-hmm. Sometime around 1770, Dexter and his family came to Newburyport where he would affect where he would erect, nice word, erect a comedic, a comedically regal estate and continue his torrid affair with Lady Luck. With his newly doubled riches, Dexter bought a fleet of shipping vessels, a stable of beautiful horses, a pimped out carriage graced with his initials, and a mansion that he would come to transform into a decadent eyesore. The estate was lavish and large. The roof was adorned with decorative towers to appear more like a complicated palace. He borrowed Roman, French, and Middle Eastern architecture to mimic homes of foreign nobility. And even the outhouses were very regal and, um, I think, like, decked in gold. A vast and beautiful garden, as well. Over 40 columns erected across the property atop stood massive wood-carved statues of who Dexter considered to be great figures. These columns, like, wood-carved men, and they were all 15 feet tall each. Mm -hmm. Um, Examples of these wooden totems was uh, General George Washington, Thomas Jefferson... John Adams, and some other military heroes, some Indian chiefs, famous philosophers and politicians, and the goddess of fame and liberty. Hmm. Um, these are all just statues lining the way to the walkway to his house. That's kind of cool, actually. Yeah. I just, apparently, they were just so ugly. <laughs> okay, well, never mind. Uh, people ride. just hated it. Like, it was a local eyesore. Uh, the final statue was of Lord Timothy Dexter himself with the inscription, I am the first in the East, the first in the West and the greatest philosopher in the Western world. Oh, God. Okay. And he truly believed that. So the statues cost $2,000 a pop, and in total cost Dexter more than what he paid for his house. 
He also, Whoa. yeah, no, he also built an extravagant mausoleum for himself, which later the state refused to let him be buried in. <laughs> and the interior was furnished with the most expensive styles of the time, even owning curtains that once belonged to the Queen of France. That's so outrageously he's just, wasteful. Yeah. He's, but he's spending so much money, but he keeps on making so much money. Right. So he's not, you know, he's not struggling. It doesn't mean anything. So the Dexter house became such a spectacle, like a negative spectacle in town, that Dexter's wife moved into a different house across town to avoid embarrassment. Wow. Dexter's equally dim-witted son later moved in with him and quickly turned the mansion into his personal sin factory. Whoa. With endless, you have to. Yeah, with endless drugs, alcohol, and sex. Um, locals compared it to a brothel. Hmm. So some more lucky streaks come to Lord Timothy Dexter. Having bought a fleet of transport ships, Dexter officially launched an enterprise in international trade. Just as before, his spiteful neighbors gave him terrible advice in hopes of ruining him. Advice number one, sell warming pans. That's what they used to use for warming bedsheets. It was like a little like can with a candle on it and you put hot coals in it and you'd Run your sheets through it. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. His neighbors gave him the advice to sell warming pans to folks in the West Indies, a European colonial territory known for year-round summers. They would never be used. Right. Dexter bought 42,000 warming pans and set off to sell them in a land where beds never got cold. When Dexter arrived and saw that they were useless in the West Indies, he rebranded the long-handled flat brass pans as ladles and sold them to sugar and molasses plantations. The demand for adequate ladles was very high at the time, so Dexter marked the price up 79% and returned home way richer than he was before. Wow. So it just happens at the time that they, they don't have adequate ladles, and so he's like, just use these. Yeah. I got Holy 42,000 of them. The second piece of advice was sell coal in Newcastle, England. This purportedly started as a joke when his jealous neighbors told Dexter to, quote, carry coal to Newcastle, an old idiom used to describe a pointless task as Newcastle was one of the world's biggest coal producers. Mm. So you might as well carry coal to Newcastle. Nevertheless, Dexter literally shipped coal to Newcastle. In another example of astronomical luck, the local miners at the time were on strike and Newcastle was in desperate need of coal. Dexter again marked up the price and came home with, quote, one and a half barrels of silver. Wow. He once purchased 340 tons of whalebone, a material that soon became known as the plastic of the 1800s, used in corsets, mm. whips, toys, and typewriters. With so much whalebone, Dexter monopolized and set his own price, a 75% markup. He really loves that number. He does. It's always 75%. Dexter would write about his knack for market investing and speculation, writing in nearly incoherent misspellings. This is from a book he wrote. <laughs> Quote, I was very lucky in speculation. Mm-hmm. Speculators swarmed me like hellhounds. <laughs> so Dexter failed. He hasn't got. A... I want that on a quote too. <laughs> I, can you read that again? <laughs> I was very unlucky in speculation. Speculators swarmed me like hellhounds. That's beautiful. Hounds is there's no D in hounds. It's just hounds. <laughs> um, so Dexter failed to woo the upper crust nobility, retaining actual friendships with other offbeat characters such as Madame Hooper, a rich widow turned fortune teller who advised Dexter on astrology. There was also Jonathan Plummer, Dexter's poet laureate, a hired poet typically hired by kings to write poems in a commemoration of special events and accomplishments. But Dexter just wanted him to write poems about him. Right. And Plummer, Jonathan Plummer, wrote poems praising Dexter's greatness and wisdom. Prior to this, plumbers sold fish and early pornography. As you do. Nothing wrong with selling pornography, but back then, 
if you're selling pornography, you're probably built different. Um, so you're probably a swine. You're probably a swine. You're definitely not as good as the speculators. Right. <laughs> as for his family, his son was described as depressed, unintelligent, and, quote, a half-mad drunk. His daughter was a completely mad drunk. His wife, embarrassed of Dexter's trashy tastes and style and architecture, as well as his terrible personality and reputation. No, holy cow. Uh, his Did relation- anyone like him? No, I just need to know this. Nobody liked him. Nobody liked him. <laughs> that is so infuriating. Like, this guy's universally hated. He's dumb. He's rude. And just like... Has all the wealth. Has all the wealth. He's like stuck up for no fucking reason. Yeah. But he just keeps getting all these lucky-ass coincidences. 100%. His relationship with all three were strained, and he eventually took to telling visitors and neighbors that his wife had died, which she hadn't. Oh, jeez. And, and the matronly woman seen inside the house... And roaming the grounds was, in fact, her ghost. So I he can, literally told people, my wife's dead. Oh, isn't that her right over there? Oh, it's her ghost. I can literally imagine this. I can imagine, like, oh, how's your wife doing? Ah, oh, she's dead. She did. She, she did. did. I thought I just saw her. You probably saw her ghost. That was her ghost. Oh, it's haunted. With a lifelong obsession with his legacy and people's opinion of him, Dexter staged a mock funeral <laughs> to gauge the community's reception of him and his passing. He wanted to see how people really felt about him, so he pretended to be dead. Holy hell. This is when he had his tomb constructed. He is so chaotic. He's 100% chaotic. He's just ridiculous. He's like chaotic neutral to a T. But maybe like if you're chaotic, and we talked about the chaos of life, maybe if you just gel with that, you find success maybe that's why i'm lucky because i'm also fairly chaotic you are kind of chaotic yeah so he had his he has his tomb constructed he lets his wife and his kids in on the prank and he demanded that they act the part and really sell it Mm -hmm. so three thousand people arrived to celebrate dexter's passing which pleased him as he watched mourners from a hidden compartment in his house (laughs) however upon noticing that his wife hadn't even cried or, or acted sad enough this is terrible this is dated Yeah. It's hilarious, tragic, (laughs) but remember, this is the 1700s. So he was upset that his wife wasn't crying enough, wasn't selling it. Dexter emerged from the floor and began hitting her with his cane. What? So he's beating her with his cane. Keep in mind, everyone thinks he's dead. He casually gets out of the floorboards with a cane and starts beating the shit out of his wife. Someone someone needs to make this into a movie. I know. And so when he realized his cover was blown and saw a sea of baffled mourners staring back at him, Dexter ceased beating his wife and joined in on the festivities as if nothing ever happened. (laughs) He didn't address it. He just got food. He started walking around talking to people. What? Yeah. And then there was the memoir. Dexter set out to immortalize his legacy with his autobiography. It was called A Pickled for the Knowing Ones or Plain Truths in a Homespun Dress. Mm-hmm. That was the alternate title. The memoir was a literary train wreck consisting of bragging, embellishments, and a rambling writing style that read as if Dexter was just writing whatever popped into his head. Mm. It was plagued with horrible misspellings, grammatical errors, and zero punctuation. I read it. It's almost impossible to read. <laughs> you have to read it three times to understand what words he's trying to spell. <laughs> Um, After critics complained about the complete absence of punctuation, there was not a single thing of punctuation, Dexter reprinted a second edition of his memoir with an additional page at the end filled with punctuation marks and a message from Dexter instructing the reader to, quote, pepper and salt them as you please. Holy fuck. He's like, you do the work. Oh, my God. You fucking figure out where this apostrophe goes. This guy is kind of amazing, though. Like, (laughs) he's, he's actually the worst, but he's, like, the biggest, like... 
I don't know. He's kind of like an unsung hero in a way. Yeah, there, there there's something. It's charming for some reason. Yeah. For some reason, I really like him because yeah. I hate him so much. I want to read you an excerpt from his from his memoir. So this is something I copied and pasted. Just know that this is literally littered with misspellings. Like, he can't go three words without doing a hor- horrific, like, phonetic spelling of a word. Okay. Quote from his memoir, mm-hmm. A Pickle for the Trying Ones. I am the first lord in the United States, spelled Y-O-U, United States of a mer- of a space Mercaria, now of Newburyport, it is the voice of the pepple, and I can't help it, and so let it gone now, as I must be lord there, will foller many more lords pretty soon. For it don't hurt a cat, nor the mouse, nor the sun, nor the water, nor the ear, then go, on all is easy. Now, bonds broken, all is well in love now. I gin <laughs> to play the cornerstone and keystone. What grat remembrance of my father, Gorg Washington, the grat hero, seventeen <laughs> centuries past before we found so good a fodder to his children. And now gone to rest now to show my love to my fodder and grat characters, I will show the world one of the grat wonders of the world in 15 months. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I think he's talking about how he carved George Washington in wood for his house. What does that even mean? I think I would love this guy if I met him <laughs> because of the absolute absurdity of it yeah. and just like how outrageously bad it is and how like he's obviously a bad person. Bad. But, he's just a bad person. But like how much he's just himself it's true. unapologetically. He can't fault. Yeah, he can't, he's not an imposter. He's 100% him. Yeah. And he's trying really, he's really trying to be an imposter, but he can't not be him. Exactly. You know, because also all the stories about him. Everyone says he was the rudest motherfucker in a room. He would like eat with his hands and he would belch and he would like call women fat, but like in like an, like he didn't, wasn't trying to be mean. Yeah. Like he was that kind of bad person. Whereas like he literally is not trying to be mean. He's just rude. He's just a loaf. Like he just yep. doesn't understand. He rude, just literally does rude. not get it. That's right. He doesn't get it. And I, that's why I think if he, if he did meet you, I don't think he would register. I don't think he would be even like, I don't think he would get it. Yeah. Whatever you're talking about. I don't think he comprehends things. I th- I feel like he's one of those people that you're having a conversation with him and he's like waiting for you to stop talking so he can continue the conversation he was having with himself. Right. Right. And he doesn't even know where he's going when he starts talking. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. that writing was like, I have, he, there's no way he has any idea where he's going to end that each yeah. sentence. Yeah. It's miraculous. It's amazing. But it's time for his luck to run out. Oh, good. The grave's calling. Wow. Lord Timothy Dexter. He's not alive still? No, he's not. <laughs> yep, he's you know, very old. <laughs> Dexter actually died in 1806 at the age of 59. He wasn't even that wow. old. What the fuck? He did so much in his time. Wow. That is a lot. That's I have a lot to live up to. I know, right? Likely due to his bizarre lifestyle choices like excessive drinking and an, and an immune system run down by foreign illnesses acquired throughout his career as he traveled to exotic ports for trading, uh, he just sort of died. You know, that happens sometimes. <laughs> His estate remained a local landmark until 1988 when painters hired to renovate the exterior attempted to remove the paint beneath the eaves, which is like the roof overhang, Mm -hmm. by burning the old paint off, which I guess is actually a method for paint stripping, but just very dangerous. Yeah. And the the entire Dexter estate caught fire and burnt down. It was later sort of rebuilt as a a replica for historical 
preservation. And it's called the Buckingham Palace of Newburyport. Mm. So it's still there, his mansion or his palace? Um, yeah, it's like a, it's like a re, they have drawings of it as well, but it's like a, uh, it's a recreation. Ah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that is, that is the life and times of Lord Timothy Dexter, the luckiest guy, one of the luckiest people in luckiest schlubs, right. I would say. I saw that story was so infuriating and entertaining. Yeah. I loved that. That was great. Yeah. And so just trying to circle back around to the idea of like luck and chance. I was just wanted to add this at the end. Mm -hmm. In an Ask Reddit post, I was Googling all across the web for like, you know, just different stories of lucky people and stuff. Um, this, This Ask Reddit post, which was titled, Who is the Luckiest Person in History? There were thousands of comments offering fabulous tales of lucky people like Timothy Dexter and um, Tutomu Yamaguchi. But one comment caught me off guard. I thought it was kind of sweet. And I think this is like a good little takeaway. An anonymous user answered, quote, I would have to say that that old couple, as mentioned in a previous comment, who were married for 50 to 60 years and they died six hours apart without knowing the other had died. Mm. Those are the luckiest ones. Imagine living to the old age of 85 with the love of your life and both of you dying without the pain of seeing the other one die. Mm. They both passed peacefully, as I recall. I couldn't ask for more out of life. Wow. That's so sweet. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes luck isn't just a boatload of money it's yeah it's fame and fortune and all that stuff i think every day there's luck yeah there's luck to be seen just like there's good to be seen in every day there's luck to be seen yeah exactly you're lucky that you're here i mean like literally anybody could it's not impossible for anybody to just croak you know yeah you could just be just be dead you could have never been born you know you were that one sperm i almost get fucking in a car wreck every day i swear yeah One, one of these days i might just not be here anymore yeah you might yeah, you might be, you might be in uh, Toledo. Yeah, yep. exactly. Because you can't die, you're immortal. <laughs> Which is why you drive recklessly. <laughs> Nevertheless, we are here, living and breathing, losing and winning, miserable and elated. To fall victim to chance is to be alive, and it's part of the human condition. Hmm. Is so, that you? you that's quote? I, I, it's just me writing. Wow, look at that. You should be a philosopher. Thank you. <laughs> That's what this podcast is. It's me being a philosopher. Uh, and me. Thank you very much. It's you being a reckless driver. It's me being the chaotic snake in the corner of the room. You are a chaotic snake. Mm-hmm. But not a snake in the sense that you are a deceiver. Mm-hmm. A snake in the sense that you are am, wrigley. I'm wrigley. You and slither. I'm also, I'm more scared of you <laughs> yeah. than you are of me. <laughs> and you're always guarding a clutch of eggs. All right. For some reason, I always have a mouse in my mouth. <laughs> yeah, really weird. It like, doesn't digest. You can see it. Like You clearly just ate a mouse because right. there's a big lump in your body. Mm-hmm. I flex a lot. Oh, I really am a snake. Yeah. Well, uh, that just about covers it for this mini-sode. A little bit longer than usual, maybe. I'm not sure after yeah. editing what will be shaved out or not. But I just thought that was a little bit of a deviation from, you know, ghouls and creepy... Ooh. <laughs> Oh, help me. Oh. <laughs> got, got caught there for a second. Um, yeah, a little deviation from our normal stuff, a little bit more conceptual and fun yeah. history stuff. Yeah, I feel like we talk about these kind of things every now and again. And I think it is like a nice little breakup from usual, I don't know, weird ass fucking concepts because yeah. our next full that we have planned are like universe theories and like big old wumbo jumbo energy, yeah. past life stuff. Past lives and, oh, uh, God. It's a lot. Yeah. And it's, space. It, yeah. Space aliens. Space. It's good to be grounded once in a while. And the fact that, like, this is 
the, the the idea that like luck and chance is grounding means that you're normally talking about crazy shit. <laughs> but yeah, so I hope you all enjoyed that. You sounded like a William Defoe, or not William Defoe. You William sounded like a Defoe. fucking Christopher Walken for a second. What did I say? <laughs> I don't know what I said. If you're a ground in a... <laughs> I can't do Christopher Walken impression. <laughs> <laughs> oh, everybody's Christopher Walken sounds the same. Uh, there you go. That was good. Wow. <laughs> no. Mo. Oh, God. Mo. I don't like that. Mo. I can't do it. I can't do good. it. That was good. That was good. Mo. Mo. <laughs> You got to stop driving so recklessly. It's like, it's good, but it also unnerves me. I just feel very uncomfortable I feel right violated. Now. I feel violated doing it and also hearing other people's Christopher Walken impressions. Isn't there something violating about like, that? I feel like he can't be real. No. Do you, do you think that at some point in his life he started doing this voice for attention um, and because he thought it made him like quirky and more interesting and then it just stuck and now he's like so far gone that he can't stop? What I heard... Is that he doesn't like punctuation in a script to inform him on his character and how mm. he wants to deliver. So what he does or what he has his agent do or, or, or you know, his like assistant do is take scripts he gets mm-hmm. and scribble out all the punctuation. Wow. So what you're hearing is him guessing where things end. So he understands. Like he's, wow. he, he, that's why it sounds so weird is because that's not how he, a, a sentence flows. Interesting. His inflections all over the place. That's so. That's so fun fact. Bing bang boom. Bing bang boom. Anyhow, that was good. I enjoyed listening to that. Thank you for diving into Lucky Biznatch. All you had to do is interview me, but these other stories are been doing. That was all one big word. Well, thank you, fellas, for listening to our podcast and continuing to support us. We love you very much. And if you have a topic idea or have general feedback for our show, you can send us an email at according to an idiot at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on Facebook and Instagram at according to an idiot. We also have a Twitter at idiots accord. If that tickles your fancy a little bit more than the other stuff. We also have a Patreon. We have a Patreon now. And we also have a Discord server so you can meet other gals and ghouls to talk spooky jazz stuff with that's your thing that's right you can talk about jazz stuff you can talk about the theory of jazz theory you can talk about playing brass mm-hmm. you can talk about uh duke ellington okay moving on <laughs> <laughs> we won't talk about that in the discord please join okay, it okay, please, please well, join promise, it i promise we won't talk about duke ellington yeah Thank you all for listening. I love you very much. And I will see you in time. Bye.